0: In telescopes and accessories. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Space Junk. We've got another podcast planned for you today. This is your chance to get caught up on all the really cool stuff from all the cool kids in the world of amateur astronomy. You are sitting by listening to this podcast at the cool kids table in the astro photography cafeteria because today we're going to be talking with Blake Estes. Uh, he is Dustin, just got through telling me that he. Th- Says Blake Estes is one of the top three planetary imagers in the world, right? And what you said, Dustin?
1: Yeah, yeah. This guy. So this is this is a close friend. Blake actually is part of the team here at OPT. And um, you know, the first time I saw his planetary work, I, I, you know, it's very rare anymore that I see space images and think, oh yeah, that's fake. But this guy's stuff is <laughs> so good, so so good that it's just it's it's hard to believe that some of it is. Uh, is real, but he's a phenomenal photographer, absolutely lives and breathes astrophotography and uses some of the, um, the biggest systems in the world. So we can, we can talk about all of that. Yeah. Great. So
0: in addition to being one of the best imagers a planetary imagers in the world, uh, he's also in training to become a telescope operator for two of the most iconic observatories in the United States, uh, Mount Wilson observatory, as well as Griffith observatory, just out that's just outside of LA. So he is currently, you are being trained to use these telescopes, and we're going to talk to him today about what these scopes are like and also about his imaging techniques and any advice that he might have for all of us. So, Blake, welcome to our humble podcast. How are you?
2: Oh, I'm doing great. How are you?
0: Now, you're with Dustin in the same room at OPT, right?
2: That's correct. Yeah. All right. So, tell us a little bit
0: about, about, Well, I want to get into your imaging for sure, but I want also to learn about how you got involved with OPT as well as getting these, uh, Positions at these observatories.
2: All righty. Well, uh, I, I guess I should start with with OPT first. I've always had an interest uh, since Comet Hale Bopp uh, was was in the sky. I think it was 96, 97. I think it was ninety seven. But uh, that's when I got my first uh, you know astronomical telescope, and it was one of those those ones that you kind of you can get at like Walmart. They're like fifty dollars, and they say, oh, you know, a thousand times magnification. You can you, you see the moon and whatnot. And <laughs> yeah, I. No,
0: just the one you
2: mean <laughs> uh, um, and so yeah I I, uh, I saw the comet uh, through that telescope and uh, I was just mesmerized by it you know that this 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 giant you know object that just had this beautiful tail on it was in the sky for you know several weeks as I recall and uh, it just it became a curiosity and, uh, and and a desire to understand and and capture these things and and share it with uh, the 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 world basically it was the beginning of a long journey and so fast forward uh my buddy and i last year wanted to go really big on a project so he he and i are both uh graduates of brooks institute of photography and we kind of did our own thing uh regarding uh astronomical imaging there and so he bought a uh, hundred thousand dollar you know phase one setup uh the the iq3 100 and basically what we wanted to do was we wanted to put this thing on a tracking mount and uh, take these, these gorgeous, you know, deep images of, of nebulas and and whatnot. And so we were looking for the the best company with the, the biggest selection. And, of course, uh, that was OPT. So we show up one day and, uh, you know, Dustin's uh, up in the front counter there. And um, we take out this phase one and they, we said, hey, we want to take giant pictures of the night sky. And Dustin was like. You guys are cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, right, they're Cool.
0: I told you cool kid's table here, folks.
2: <laughs> you know, he, he, uh, he said, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you work with us and, uh, you know, we can, we can do some really cool projects and, uh, you know, I've, I've been here ever since I'm, I'm the technician. I, I have the opportunity to, to test amazing equipment with Dustin and, and for Dustin, I have a unique opportunity to test that in in different locations, uh, where the scene is really good. Uh, like, like Mount Wilson, yeah, it's just it's just been awesome. Everything's kind of come together uh like like a puzzle almost. Can you tell us what a phase one setup is? Uh yeah, the phase one is a uh six four five format uh medium format uh camera. And so this is a this digital camera, very similar to the the Mamiya uh six four five sensor. So it's uh six six centimeters by four point five centimeters. That's the the size of the, the piece of film that that it would be. So it's very, very large compared to a 35 millimeter and uh so this is a a full digital sensor uh that's the same size so it's it's Covers an enormous amount of space, and so the demands that it places on optics is is as you might imagine quite high. What's the pixel size? Oh gosh, you know I don't remember the pixel size, but I wanted to say they were around five microns.
1: Yeah, it had to be about that because I mean, it was a huge chip, but you know, still at that uh, at that resolution, uh, that that many megapixels, it's, <laughs> it still keeps them relatively small.
2: Yeah, you know, we we did do some some experiments, and we found out that. Um, it it works extremely well for galaxies, but not so much for, for nebulae. Uh, the the filter that's that's normally on uh, that that digital back tends to cut off a lot of the red um, and hydrogen. Of course, it works wonderful for you know everything else, landscapes and the studios and stuff. But now we we're talking about the uh, the FLI fifty one hundred chip, which is it's basically the same size, but it's it's more suited for uh, astronomy.
1: That's actually, so yeah, when, uh, when Blake came in with his friend, that's, that's kind of where it all started. I was, um, you know, it was very rare at that point that I was ever able to, to get up there to the showroom, you know, our old building was divided. It was, it was two levels and I was always kind of stuck down in the offices, but, uh, one of the sales guys came down and was like, Hey, there's this camera up here. You're going to want to see this thing's pretty incredible. So I came up there and then, you know, Blake is a happy guy. He's up there <laughs> holding this $100,000 camera. And uh, we immediately started talking about these projects. And that's something that here we, we pretty much always have going on. There's always what can we do bigger? What can we do better? What can be the first time something's done? And I was working on a project with the 5100 that Blake's talking about. This is a huge medium format uh, camera. It's basically like two full frame chips combined. So set next to each other in red is one big chip. It's actually, it is one big chip, but it, it reads out as two. Um, but it, that's how big it is. I mean, it's massive. And so when they started talking about this, uh, this phase one, you know, it kind of registered, hey, this is still a, this is still a color sensor, right? It's going to have a Bayer matrix and it's going to have some limitations. We should put some equipment in your hands that's designed for this purpose. You know, let's cool it. Let's freeze the chip. Let's take some really long exposures. And the work that I had seen of Blake's to that point, Blake had shot on systems that were, I mean, relatively old. Um, you know, they were still very, very good systems. I think you had an old Mead at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, a system that he loved. But, you know, there had been a lot of updates to equipment since then. And um, I just thought if this is what this guy's producing, now with equipment that's you know 15 years old what's going to happen if we put state of the art stuff in this guy's hands and just say run So yeah, I mean, those, those are the kind of projects that we live for here at OPT. We're always looking for the new thing that we can do that's bigger or better or just different. And you take the newest, you know, the state of the art equipment as it changes, as you get these, these new items that come out, it opens up new possibilities, you know, like uh, for a long time, for instance, like narrowband filters were not a thing for a long time. And then once that that became, you know, uh, something that, you know, the common user could get, it changed things entirely because then you could start shooting emission nebulae from your backyard, no matter where you were. And so, and that's just one example. And there, there are different examples every single day of the year with new equipment coming out. And so I was looking at Blake's stuff and, you know, the stuff Blake was shooting was on a system that was it had to be what, 10, 15 years old?
2: Yeah. It's, it's actually, I kind of have a funny story about uh, part of it. The, uh, the system I had actually was what I got uh, instead of a car when I turned 16. <laughs> that's how much <laughs> I was into, That's, that's
1: dedication right there. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And so I was looking at it and it's like, this guy's images are absolutely incredible and he's doing it on this mount that most, you know, most imagers would never want to deal with the shake and the vibrations and all the tracking error and all of this, these problems. And I just thought if we get some of this new equipment in this guy's hands, he's going to take this to an entirely new level. And so Blake and I started talking and in the original discussions about working with OPT, were in no way talks about like employment with the company. It was just a, we have a lending library here for our staff that has basically like one of everything anything the staff want to use they pull it from what we call our lending library and they can use that equipment to just learn on to run into problems before customers ever do or whatever it is and so the idea was just Blake why don't you let us open up the lending library to you and anything you want to use we want you to come get take it for as long as you want and all we're asking in return is just push photography as far as you possibly can let's see what you can do And that's where things started was, I mean, that was the relationship with Blake was just this guy that had a talent and that we wanted to see if you match that talent with access to equipment, what happens, right? He was our, he was our experiment. And um, it's one that has been very fruitful, one that we've all, I think Blake included, have learned a lot from and uh, has definitely helped push the hobby. Uh, very quickly in a direction, in in a positive direction, and uh, I mean it's been exciting to watch, man. In what way, uh, Dustin does that? Does that happen? So, I mean, are
0: is it the uh, is it the techniques that can be developed when you have someone like Blake with with the equipment that that is state of the art, or what? In what way does the hobby get advanced? Uh, just is it new techniques, new processing, new uh, because not everybody has state of the art stuff. So mm-hmm.
1: uh, is there is there just a knowledge base growth there? So so we have two goals here. The kind of the overarching goal for the company is to push this hobby as far as it possibly can. We feel like that's that's kind of the obligation we have, you know, being being the leader, we have to really set the bar on what can be done here. And we have to kind of find the limitations. And I feel like the new equipment are, you know, they, they redefine the limitations. It's constantly a moving target because as equipment gets better and better, which happens by the day, you know, the bar gets raised by default, but that's only the case. If you have talent that can, you know, match that equipment's ability. Yeah. So what, what, what becomes possible in the hobby is redefined when you match the talent with the equipment I exactly and so as we as we define what is the new bar how how good can things really be how far can this be pushed then our goal becomes how do we simplify that so now how do we take this new bar and say how do we make it a fraction of the cost to achieve? How do we simplify the processing techniques? And how do we make this something that a common user, not somebody that has access to Mount Wilson or Griffith, but somebody that just bought a system for their backyard and they're a hobbyist, how can they get images like this now? And then once they can, let's set the bar even higher, right? That's the goal. That's the process. And that's what we're constantly focused on.
0: OK, I want to get into some astro imaging techniques a little bit later in the podcast. But while we're on the topic of, you know, OK, so this is how you got the story of how you got involved with OPT. Uh, Blake, tell us a little bit about how you're now getting involved in these observatories, these professional observatories.
2: The professional observatories is always something that that I've I've had an interest in. I've I've uh, longed for a long time. Uh, to help uh, conduct scientific research in any manner that I can. Science is something that, that I, I value greatly. Um, I've always had a desire to uh, understand the world around me and also share that with others. And what better way than, than science? Griffith Observatory was my, my first kind of venture into the pr- professional realm of sharing science with the public, and also uh, having the opportunity to work at my first, uh, you know, professional observatory. I don't know. It was a, it was a, a very interesting uh, kind of thing how it happened. If, if I can give you a little bit of a, a back story on exactly what was going on. Um, I lived in Santa Barbara for a while um, after I had graduated. You know, there, uh, I, was, I was having fun there uh, where I was working. But, you know, I just I, I felt like I could I could do more. My buddy had moved in with me and we said, you know what, we got to we got to do something in L.A. That's 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 what's really going to you know, allow us to do what we want to do. And so over breakfast one morning, he uh, said, well, well, what do you want to do in L.A.? And I said, well, I don't know, I guess I could I could work at Griffith Observatory. That, that sounds like that would be a pretty awesome thing to do. And he said, well, are they even hiring? And, you know, I looked at my phone and I, I just typed in, you know, jobs at Griffith Observatory. And sure enough, it's a uh, telescope operator hiring. And I was like, oh, wow. OK, they, they actually are. <laughs> yeah, I applied and it, you know, it it, it took a while. But yeah, yeah I've, I've been there for, for three years. And I, I usually, I mean, it, I, I do a lot of juggling because I, I, I work at OPT during the week and then I either uh, go to, uh, Griffith Observatory or Mount Wilson to uh, do work. And so we're actually um, doing a, a sort of long-term project for Griffith Observatory right now where we're updating the the camera system. And so OPT is involved in that. We're going to make sure that they have the, the, the ideal camera system to share um, what we can capture with the
1: public. So- Talk about that scope a little bit. Blake was nice enough to give me a a private tour of Griffith. Have you been there, Tony? Uh, No, I
0: haven't. Um, That's one of the few that observatory and the Mount Wilson ones I have never I've never been to. So,
1: so yes. Griffith sits atop a mountain just outside of L.A. You can see the entire city of L.A. from Griffith Observatory. It is stunning. I mean, it's like iconic doesn't describe like it's believable being up there and just seeing this thing kind of uh, perched above the entire city. But uh, it's a moving experience. And that observatory is incredible. But talk about the scope that's in there a little bit,
2: Blake. Oh, yeah. So the uh, uh, just just going back for a split second here. uh Yeah, the observatory is is very striking it's a 1930s art deco very very uh, gorgeous architecture and uh, the telescope actually has an interesting story as well and so um, the observatory's main telescope there is the uh, 1935 uh, carl zeiss refractor and the telescope was actually uh, produced uh, well I, i should go back it was believe it or not, ordered from a catalog. Uh, <laughs>
1: was it really?
2: Yeah. And so the the backstory was it's actually intertwined with Mount Wilson. Uh, so Griffith J. Griffith, who, who, who was uh, a, a wealthy gentleman uh, who, who made his, his money from silver, came to L.A. and he was invited up to Mount Wilson uh, when they were doing, uh, you know, really active research at the time. And he was allowed to uh, look through the telescope up there at Saturn. And he was just completely blown away because, you know, Mount Wilson has some of the finest seen in the continental United States. It's, it's usually about 0.5 arc seconds uh, on average. And so, um, you know, seeing Saturn through that telescope was just uh, incredible. And he said, you know, if the world could see what I saw through this telescope, it would just change everything. It would change our perspective on how we treat each other and just the universe in general. And they said, well, we certainly appreciate that, but this is a a research facility and, uh, you know, you're kind of a VIP. And he said, well, you know what? I'm going to build my own observatory uh, for the public and people from all over the world can come here and see what I saw for free. And so thanks to him, we have Griffith Observatory. So that telescope, as as I mentioned, was was ordered from the Carl Zeiss uh, Optical Catalog. I believe in 1931, it was completed in, in 1935. It actually has a sister telescope, a guide scope on top. There's a nine and a half inch uh, refractor telescope and they were separated for quite some time. And the, the, it's an interesting story about that as well. There was a, a gentleman named Shelley Studi who actually drove around the LA area with a nine and a half inch, Carl's ice refractor mounted to the top of his car (laughs) and he would drive around and he had this little telescoping pole. I think it was a, it was a Ford model T of some sort, one of the later uh, versions. I'm I'm not too much of a car savvy gentleman, but um, he had this, uh, you know, this contraption that that would allow him to, to raise it up. And actually, if you visit Griffith Observatory, you look online, uh, you'll actually see a picture of him with this like 10-foot long telescope, <laughs> you know, mounted to the top of his car looking through it. Um, he decided that, you know, uh, he couldn't really uh, keep doing that anymore. So he he contacted uh, Griffith Observatory and said, hey, um, are you guys interested in the scope? Of course, we said yes. Uh, it was it was actually made to be the guide scope for that 12-inch Zeiss refractor. What's interesting about the the Zeiss um, factory, it was in Jena, Germany. And basically what happened was later on, of course, World War II started. And so uh, Zeiss was, you know, it was a manufacturer of optics uh, for Germany. And so it was a strategic target uh, during uh, World War II. And so luckily the, the Zeiss Astro uh, part of the, the factory was on the outskirts. And so it was actually spared from being obliterated. And then later on, uh, the the U.S. Army came in and actually uh, confiscated the documents and blueprints for the telescope. And so, not really much is known about um, the the Zeiss telescope's inner workings. But it has a, a relatively complex system inside of it to keep the the tube from flexing. To my knowledge, there's only four of those telescopes in the world of that specific kind. There's there's many other. Uh, Zeiss Telescope, some are larger, some are smaller, but that particular kind and its counterbalance system, uh, we we know of only four of them, and currently the one at Griffith Observatory and one other one are the only ones in, in operation, so it's, uh, it's interesting. So it, the, the
0: objective diameter of the primary refractor is 12 inches. That's correct. Yes. And the guide scope is 9
2: uh,
0: nine and a half. yeah. Nine and a half. Wow. That's a, that, that is an impressive system. Well, the Zeiss uh, optics have been world-class for, since they've been around and, and even today they still are. I mean, a pair of Zeiss binoculars will set you back quite a bit uh, as well. So, I mean, this is, this must be an, an amazing optical system in terms of just the quality of the
2: image that you're seeing.
0: Can you just put an eyepiece on these telescopes and look through them?
2: Oh, absolutely. We have uh, we have TeleVue eyepieces, Explore Scientific eyepieces that we we have on there. Um, we have Mead eyepieces, Celestron ones. They all work wonderful on on this telescope. We're really limited on uh, just the atmospheric scene for this. And you know, it's it's interesting because you know this this telescope's well over eighty years old. There's no optical coatings on it. They didn't they didn't really have them back then. You know, it's it's just. The, the Zeiss glass lens. that's an 80-pound lens in the front. It's a doublet, and uh, it's a uh, achromatic or achromatic uh, refractor. But uh, you know, it's a it's a 15-foot-long scope, so that light focuses all on the you know the same uh, focal plane. And uh, when you when you get an image of of Jupiter or or Saturn or the uh, Moon or the Moon, yeah, yeah, we looked
1: at the Moon and it was
2: incredible. Yeah, it's 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 tack sharp it's just gorgeous so if you ever get a chance definitely come check it out we'd be happy to have I'd it. love to it's funny I, I know a lot
0: about many observatories around the world uh from Chile all the way to Mauna Kea and and just you know everywhere but I don't know much about the ones in California it's really weird but it sounds like and and I don't know much about the ones in Arizona either but the ones in this particular one sounds like it was designed from the beginning to be a sort of an outreach telescope from the sounds of what you were, you were saying about Griffith's initial response at Mount Wilson was, you know, everybody should look through this. And so he builds a, an, an observatory in a relatively, of course, at the time, it wasn't all that close by L.A., was it? It was kind of dark when they first built Griffith's observatory, wasn't it?
2: That's true. And uh, they, they actually have an interesting um, kind of, documentary style uh, movie that they show at the observatory that's actually uh, narrated by the late uh, Leonard Nimoy. That's uh, very, very interesting about the history. And basically, Griffith knew that one day, LA would be a world class uh, city. Uh, it would be a you know very very large city, and so he he planned ahead for this, and uh, sure enough, uh, we we have him to thank for this wonderful uh, beautiful observatory up on the hill up there. What I know about it, I've seen I've seen it in
0: movies plenty of times, right? Because a lot it's a very popular movie set, but that's it's only yeah. from the outside
2: looking in. Uh, yeah, I believe uh, I believe that uh, it's actually been featured in well over fifty movies. <laughs> I know, yeah, it was. You said something
0: about your uh, when you were telling me about what you did there. Uh, before we started recording, that um, you
2: also uh, are part of the visitors. You you are charge of the visitors that come up there as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, we have um, you know uh, between four hundred to seven hundred people a night, and so uh, basically my responsibilities up there when I work is I either operate the lawn scope or the the Zeiss telescope itself. And basically, we uh, as telescope operators as a whole there are are in charge of picking objects. To observe that night, and sometimes it'll be, you know, depending on the year uh, or, or the time of the year, I should say, you know, one or two objects, and you know, as many as five, uh, depending on on what's going on and and you know what we're trying to do. Say again, and how so, many people show up a night? Uh, about four hundred to
0: every uh, night. Yep, yeah, every night. Oh yeah, yeah, it's so busy. gotta get four
2: hundred people cycling through the eyepiece, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's that's per <laughs> telescope. So we have mm-hmm. uh you know we have up to five telescopes operating at one point, so we we estimate that we have at least a million visitors a year yeah well they they run
1: buses all night from the parking, which is a few it's got to be a couple miles away, and then yeah, there's these buses that come and pick up huge groups and take them up to the observatory now is
0: this throughout the entire night time the sky is night or do you like close it like midnight or something
2: up until the renovation, basically, as long as there was a line um they were open uh, which was great but uh, after the renovation they've changed a few things and so we operate from 7 p.m. uh to 10 p.m. or actually 9:30 uh on the telescope the 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 whole observatory museum and everything closes at 10 and uh, it opens at noon but the telescopes actually run from 7 to 9:30 what are the
0: objects that you show people that get the most intense reaction
2: Um, I would have to say probably Saturn. Saturn's everybody's favorite. Uh, You know, everybody, especially when we have a night of good seeing and I can pull, you know, 400 times magnification. um, It just blows people away. I mean, they're, they're really surprised that they can even see the gap in the rings. And, you know, I, I, I don't have the heart to tell them sometimes that you, you can actually kind of faintly make out the rings with a pair of binoculars. But um, yeah. it, it, the, the the view is certainly spectacular through an 11-inch or a 12-inch telescope.
0: Sure. It's going to be a lot brighter. And, uh, yeah, the resolution is going to be a lot better uh, as well. Yeah. So that's that's really cool. So, of course, Saturn. Yeah, Dustin and I have talked about that uh, mm-hmm. on many occasions. <laughs> that We always like to be the one to show people Saturn through the IP's for the first time. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jupiter is another great one. One, especially when we have shadow transits, when the when the moons are, are transiting the face of the planet, um, and we have good seeing, and of course when when it all when you know everything aligns perfectly and the red spot is is in view, it's it's pretty spectacular. It really is just so tack
1: sharp, though. I think that's the thing that stands out because all we really had time for that night because the the lines were forming quickly, um, you know, and it was just us there in the observatory, and so we didn't want to hold everybody up too long. All we had time to do was really look at the moon. But even the moon through this scope is just, uh, it wasn't like anything I had seen. You know, it's so incredibly sharp. It's its really quite an experience being able to look through a scope like this. And the other scope you deal with is, I mean, much, much larger,
2: right? Oh, yeah. The, uh, the 60-inch telescope is actually so large that when we look at Saturn, um, we actually have to climb on top of it and stand on it.
1: <laughs> yeah so the other the other scopes you deal with is a it's a 60 inch and then a 100
2: inch yep so we have yeah we have a <laughs> 1.5 meter and a and a, a 2.5 meter telescope up there on mount wilson and uh you know those have uh quite a bit of history i mean the the modern universe was discovered here in california and also the uh, the expansion of it so what do you what do you mean by that well, um so George Ellery Hale was the the brains behind um uh, Mount Wilson Observatory and it actually started as a solar observatory. Uh George Ellery Hale uh had a fixation with the sun and, and trying to understand its its inner workings. And so um using uh the Mount Wilson uh solar observatory uh with uh the what was called the Snow telescope, which is a horizontal celestat. Uh, the 60-foot solar tower, and then later on the 150-foot solar tower. Um, he was able to uh, observe the spectrum of the sun, uh, discover the magnetic fields uh, using the, the iron line of the sun uh, by uh, checking it with polarization and seeing how it bowed out when you polarized the light. Um, even though his, his initial theory of how sunspots had had uh, magnetic fields was was wrong he still came to the same conclusion and then later on edwin hubble uh we all know the the hubble space telescope uh that that was named after uh that gentleman and so Using the 100-inch telescope, which uh, was the largest up until 1949, it was built in 1917. Back then, it was widely accepted in the scientific community that the Milky Way was just the entire known universe, and other galaxies were, you know, star systems that were forming out of a disk. And of course, there were many astronomers that said, no, you know, I don't think that's, that's right. You know, I think these other galaxies are island universes like our own Milky Way, and so he had a hunch. He believed that if he could find uh, what was called a variable star, a uh, Cepheid variable, uh, that he could measure the distance.
1: And, uh, and why is that? Why, why, why does he need? I mean, if you're looking at something like the Andromeda galaxy, which they would have known about for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. this is discovered much, much earlier. I mean, there's what, roughly 200 billion stars there or more. I've heard estimates up to a trillion, right? Yeah, yeah, cool. So so if there's a trillion stars there, why does he need a variable star for this measurement?
2: The variable star is is a very important star in astronomy. Normally, the distances to stars and objects in space are measured with parallax if they're close enough to us. And this was done with variable stars. And what we've discovered with variable stars is that they're like cosmic lighthouses. They're like kind of standard candles for for, uh, measurement. And so the Cepheid variable star will brighten and dim um, with a specific period. And that specific pre- period always uh, corresponds to a specific brightness. And so by measuring the distance of one of these stars and knowing its, it's brightness, if we were to find one you know, further away, we could actually calculate roughly the distance that that object is um, by knowing how bright the star should be and how bright it actually is. That allows us to... to kind of calculate that distance. And so on October 6th, 1923, Edwin Hubble was imaging what was then uh, the Andromeda Nebula. And he found what he first thought was uh, a nova. And it, there's a very uh, famous image uh, that that basically was the, the, the final piece of evidence for this, basically. And it's called the var plate. And on the var plate, he had written initially in in paint in for Nova and then crossed it out and wrote var in red letters with exclamation point. And so he had found that night, that variable star, which uh, allowed him to calculate roughly the distance to the Andromeda galaxy, which he came out to about a million and a half light years. Of course, we know that the Andromeda galaxy is around two and a half million, but that was still enough to prove conclusively that the Andromeda galaxy was an island universe like our own, and so the universe got a little bit bigger that night. And so this happened at Mount Wilson Observatory. That's correct, right above Pasadena, where JPL sits right now.
1: Wow, and this is um, this is also the place where it uh, where it was found that the universe is expanding as well. Is that right?
2: That's correct. There was a, a gentleman uh, also, and and I. I always have trouble uh, pronouncing this name, but his name was uh, Vesto Slifer. And this gentleman used uh, the the telescope in Arizona to image over many, many nights uh, all manners of of galaxies. And he made these photographic plates. And Hubble kind of took his his data and didn't really give him a lot of credit, but he used Mr. Slifer's data to actually prove, along with data from the 100-inch telescope, that the universe was expanding by measuring uh, the red shifts of of these galaxies. So, you know, just as a a siren on an emergency vehicle will sound kind of louder as it's coming towards you and then kind of fade away as it's passing by, um, light does this as well. And so he found that the vast majority of these galaxies out there are moving away from us because their light was shifted towards the red. And then a few of them were shifted towards the blue, which told us that they were coming towards
1: us. Like Andromeda, which is going to just collide directly
2: into us, right? That's right. The Andromeda (laughs) galaxy is directly on a collision course with our own galaxy. Yeah, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. Interestingly enough, though, the distances (laughs) between the stars are so vast that it's, it's estimated that even though our solar system will have been... Uh, long gone because our sun would mm-hmm. will have swelled into a red giant and, right. and ate our planet. Um, the rest of our solar system would would remain intact. Uh, it's not estimated that any stars would really collide uh, into each other, or at least not very many of them.
1: Right? Yeah, it's amazing to me how many major discoveries have come out of this area. You oh, yeah, know? and um, you know, especially considering, like you said, this was started for solar. Right. It would the, all of the research that was going to happen there. Actually, I have a piece of the bellows cloth from that observatory. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was the original the original purpose of the observatory was that solar research. And instead, they redefine at this place, what the entire universe actually is, and continue to do research in that direction. But I guess that's what got Einstein, because I know that you can't talk about Mount Wilson without talking about Einstein's participation there and his visits there. And that's that's what got him involved, right? Was that all of this research coming out of there was kind of, it was giving him the tools he needed for all of the, um, the theories that he had been developing. So is that kind of the
2: yeah, I'm I'm a little bit shaky on it, but I I know he was there in 1931 and I'm told that uh one of the reasons he he visited was not only just because it was it was a powerhouse of astronomy and astrophysics um which of course he was, you know, directly related to. I'm told that part of his theory of relativity didn't account for the expansion of the universe which was discovered there and so he was intrigued, you know, about this instrument that that discovered it and the, and the people there and so he 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 kind of visited secretly. He didn't really tell a lot of people that he was going to visit up there because naturally, if Einstein's going to visit somewhere, everybody's going to show up and, you know, try and, and, and right. meet him. So uh there's a really famous picture on a on a great book, actually. It's called When We Discovered the Universe or The Day We Discovered the Universe. And uh there's a bridge, and they call it the Einstein Bridge, uh, that goes from the galley uh, where the astronomers used to have their their two a.m. lunch, there's a, a a bridge that that walks across uh, to the hundred-inch telescope, and you can see. And, and I'm trying to visualize everybody there. There's Einstein, uh, there's there's Milton Humason, there's Edwin Hubble, and I, I believe Walter Botta. and they're all standing on this bridge. And uh, correct me if I if I'm if I'm wrong, but uh, that's that's one of the uh, iconic images uh, from up there. That and him visiting the the 150 foot solar tower, and and I'm told you know three people uh, would go up at a time up the 150 foot solar tower uh, bucket basically, and. If you ever visit Mount Wilson on a tour, this is a very, very small lift to get up there. It's literally a a bucket that you stand in, and so I, I'm told that when Einstein was actually riding up there, there's there's a handbrake in case there's a failure and the thing you know starts to you know come down, and he was gripping it. Like, you know, like white knuckling it all, all the way up. But there's a, a really great photo of him up there standing by one of the stat mirrors. And it's uh, it's one of my favorites, actually.
0: So what are they doing now? You said there are, earlier in the podcast that they're involved in some uh, longer term research projects up there now. What, what, what are some of the things they're working on?
2: Well, there's the chara. Chara Array, which is the Center for High Angular Resolution Astronomy, and it's actually the most powerful interferometer on the planet. I think it has a resolution of 0.0002 arc seconds. So say some of that in English. Basically, they can study extremely uh, fine detail on other uh, stars. Um, They're able to actually uh, measure the rotation of certain stars, uh, image star spots, also image dust lanes around certain ones and actually deduce their shape. I believe Regulus is shaped like a a lemon basically it's a uh, prolate spheroid. It's been so fast. And uh, that's one of the things that, that's come out of the Char Array. And the Char Array is six one-meter uh, Mersenne-type telescopes. And basically, it collects the light from these six telescopes, and it literally sends it through pipes, uh, light pipes, in a vacuum to what's called the Beam Collimation Facility and um, the other facility that basically combines the light. And what they do is they measure not the actual images, but the, the, the fringes from these interference patterns that these, these telescopes create. And a lot of the physics is way over my head. But uh, basically, <laughs> they, they study I- interference fringes to, um, to deduce uh, information about these stars that they're studying
1: you have anything to add to that Tony?
0: Well just only that that is one of the most precise ways of, of measuring detail and, and structure in things that are very far away by shooting all of these light signals through these these light pipes or fiber optics or whatever they are and then measuring the interference patterns of those signals the way in which they arrive at the uh, the, the detectors and the interference pattern patterns that are caused, give you a lot of information. And that's one of the ways you can make telescopes the size of the earth, because you can have these various telescopes all over the place, all over the planet, and all of them bringing their signals into one spot and looking at these interference patterns, you can literally see things like features structure on the surface of a star helio or not helioseismology but uh, stellar seismology is is a is a good m- example of that they measure the star quakes you can see the whether a star is active or not and things like that so it's also the guiding principle behind the um, event horizon telescope which is a worldwide consortium of telescopes looking in at to try and actually image the event horizon of the of the central black hole at the center of our galaxy, Sagittarius A-star. So this is a very powerful technique and uh, it's being used all over the world for all kinds of different things. So it's cool to see that they're using that up in uh, in Mount Wilson. So we have these telescopes, Mount Wilson and then Griffiths over closer to L- LA. If I've learned anything from Dustin, what I've learned is that light pollution can be overcome and looking through these telescopes and imaging using these various telescopes. But what about the seeing? What's the seeing like at at Griffiths uh, compared, you know, is is it really still as good as
2: the day it was built? Um, So we do uh, deal with a significant amount of light pollution, uh, you know, from the LA area at both Griffith Observatory and Mount Wilson. Uh, At Mount Wilson, we're up uh, just over a mile, and so um, the aerosols and, you know, various contaminants that would scatter light up higher are are reduced it, it's kind of interesting um i've been able to actually image m51 uh the the whirlpool galaxy um with the the 12 inch zeiss telescope uh, from griffith observatory and a lot of people thought it was impossible to, uh,
1: just because of light pollution and then not being in emission nebulae you you know when you're imaging stars you can't use a lot of the filters that um you know the the basically the way the narrow band filters that allow you to cut through a lot of that light pollution. Right. So,
2: yeah. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool uh, that, that I was able to do that. They, they said, you know, you're probably not going to be able to see too much, but we're going to give you some time to, you know, you know, use a telescope to try and do this. And I was like, I'm I'm pretty certain I'll be able to do it because I, I live when I'm in LA around probably six miles from LAX. And so I've been able to image M51 there. I've been able to image the Orion Nebula. Um, the Orion Nebula, of course, requires a significant light pollution filter. And I've done some narrowband as well. But uh, M51, I've able been able to uh, do about 40 minutes. Um, you just have to do considerably shorter exposures to, to pick up at the the details i was doing about 45 second exposures normally you're doing you know three to five minutes of exposure but uh it's definitely doable
0: and that's just because of the sky background or, or why do you have to shut the cut the exposure time down
2: yeah you start um getting to what's called uh at least in the film days the the sky fog limit and that's when you're basically the contamination in the night sky from light pollution is is starting to overpower your your image of whatever you're, you're, taking a picture of. And so it's it's about getting a fine balance where you have just enough signal from the the deep space target that you're you're trying to photograph versus that that uh all that junk up there. And what about
0: the uh the uh seeing itself, the seeing conditions? Like do you have I lived in Boulder, Colorado for many years and there were nights because of the the wind and the turbulence that I was lucky to get, you know. Five arc seconds. Do you do you get pretty good seeing as far as the stability of the atmosphere
2: there in in LA um, down where I'm at? Usually the scene's about one to one and a half arc seconds, and it's gotten down a, as low as probably 0. 0.6 Just where I live, and that's that's relatively infrequent. That's usually you know a couple times a month I'll have seeing that good, which is still really good. Some people just never have that scene at all. That's where I've been able to take some of my my best photographs. just from the backyard. At you know two or three in the morning when when Jupiter is up nice and high during different times of the year. As far as Mount Wilson goes, it's absolutely spectacular. It was surveyed; they actually had a survey telescope that they would bring up there, and and later on uh, Palomar, and they would you know observe different stars at different altitudes and, and whatnot. And it was determined uh, that because of the inversion layer that that comes in, um, and uh, that I guess laminar airflow, Mount Wilson sits in in such a a way that there's very little turbulence as that air kind of passes over and so on average our scene is around it's around probably 0.8 to 0.5 arc seconds and i've seen it get as low as like 0.3 which is phenomenal that's really good (laughs) yeah why don't
1: you know i think a lot of people i'm always um you know trying to describe this to people when we're at star parties and different events, but I don't think a lot of people really know what seeing means, that uh, looking at the sky from different locations, whether you're in a desert or on top of a mountain or you know even on different sides of a mountain, what it means that the seeing would change. How would you describe that in the quickest, simplest way, Tony, mm-hmm. to someone that had no idea what seeing conditions means, what five arc seconds means of seeing? Uh, the way i describe it is it's because we're underneath
0: an atmosphere and the atmosphere has is is basically if you've ever gone outside and you see a star twinkling that's generally not great seeing because the it is the atmosphere uh, the, as the light passes through that atmosphere basically just refracting the light in all kinds of different directions so the better the seeing, the less twinkling that you have, the less atmospheric distortions that you would have. And it can be caused by just about anything all kinds of stuff, whether it's you know uneven heating of the of the earth's surface, of the, you know, maybe a storm is coming through. Although uh, you can get really good seeing in high wind if that high wind is laminar. In other words, if it's very steady, you can get some pretty good seeing. And so it is the effect of the atmosphere on making things sort of twinkle. If you're looking through a telescope, the worse the seeing is, you'll be let's say you're using a 30 power or 40 power eyepiece and you're looking at Betelgeuse, let's say the red giant, the star in Orion, and you know, you'll notice that it really is jumping all around the eyepiece. It's just going crazy. And that's not good seeing. And so you want that to be as steady as possible. And generally the colder the night, the colder the atmosphere, the better the seeing. Uh, Also, right after a storm front has moved in would also give you uh, generally good seeing. So that's how I describe it to people. Blake, do you have another explanation maybe?
2: Um, I I tend to to uh, agree with you on on all those notes, especially uh, when it comes to planetary imaging. Yeah, just as the storm fronts moving in, um, that's that's when I've had some of my best seeing. Even uh, before you know, the the marine layer comes in, even that really uh, tends to steady the air uh, quite a bit. And uh, I think um, one of the main miscon- uh, misconceptions is you know just because it's clear outside doesn't mean that you know it's going to be a great view. Like you said, when those stars twinkle, that's that's You know, a lot of air mass distorting that light in front of it.
1: Yeah, and that's distortion. And so essentially, it's like you were saying, through a telescope, you're magnifying the problem. Um, and so the, the worst, the seeing conditions, the softer, the image will look for a photographer. It looks like it's uh, almost shifting out of focus even. And so it just, it's not, uh, it's not going to be a super sharp image, but I've always kind of described it as like, when you look down a hot desert road and you can see those waves out in front of you, you know, that mirage of, uh, just heat coming off the road. It's like, I mean, you take that and then think about if you looked at that through a telescope, you would no longer be able to see the stuff behind it. All you would see is that distortion. All you would see would be those waves. And so trying to take a picture of something behind those waves is going to be extremely hard to do. Yeah, we should uh, do a podcast on magnification
0: uh, mm -hmm. sometime, Dustin. Just talk about magnification and and why you know just
1: why you don't always want it <laughs> you don't always exactly try, exactly. Uh, exactly a lot of times people shoot wide you know instead of using a, a long you know four or five thousand millimeter focal length to really get uh, get high resolution on something i'm seeing more and more people buy higher resolution sensors and put it on short focal lengths and then crop into the image so that you don't magnify the problems quite so much
2: if I may add um, one thing also, um, I actually ran into about a f- uh, bad scene actually the the weekend before up at Mount Wilson um we had a, a music group up there that was uh filming one of the things they wanted to do was uh capture some some images with the DSLR through the 60 inch telescope and unfortunately it seemed like the jet stream was passing overhead because it was just you know even alberio was just two two blobs you know we tried uh, the perseus double cluster and you know we we backed out all the way to a, a hundred millimeter lens, which is the the biggest one that we have for the for the sixty inch. It, they were still blurry. You know, we decided to try a, a globular cluster because that's one of the things that they they really wanted. And so I think we tried uh M15 and it was just it was a gray smear it was it was kind of kind of funny but it's it's interesting cuz a, a night of of bad seeing is is up there you know the demands that it has on the, on the telescope is is even more so like dustin said you know you're you're greatly magnifying that effect when you're looking at it But normally when you look at, say, M13 or, you know, M5 or something like that, it's absolutely spectacular when you look through that telescope. I mean, the the 60 and the 100-inch telescopes are the largest in the world that you can actually uh, look through. All the other ones are, you know, they have sensors on them and, you know, scientists use them. But... I remember the first time I looked at M13 through the 100 inch telescope and we had like perfect scene and you could count the individual stars in the in the center of it. It was just insane. It looked like a photo it was like a transparency was just put up, you know, somewhere inside the optical system.
0: Yeah, it's good seeing. Boy, you know it when you got it, right? I mean, it's like stuff like that just pops out through the eyepiece. It's uh, it's really quite extraordinary. Well, can I ask you now about planetary imaging? Because first of all, I'd like to know the difference in what the challenge is for pla- imaging the planets versus, say, like you said, M thirteen. What's different, and is there anything really all that different about planetary imaging? What do you have to worry about when you're imaging Mars that you don't have to worry about when you're imaging M fifty one?
2: The main thing, um, well, there's there's a few, but the absolute main thing is um, the astronomical scene uh, that that we mentioned. Um, if if you can't you know see that fine detail on the planets, then uh, you know it's 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 a hopeless endeavor, and so um, the main thing is to have you know the best scene uh, absolutely possible, and that'll allow you to to image uh, you know those sub arc second details on these planets, and then you want to have the right magnification of course because um, you don't want to basically oversample or undersample your data, which is something that that can happen with you know deep space imaging, but it's not as as critical. But uh, let's say you over, oversample data, you want to err on the side of doing that, so you have basically too many pixels versus not enough. And and what I mean by that is, let's say you're you're photographing a star cluster, and you you have very very large pixels on your on your sensor. If you image those stars you might not have stars that are large enough to excite enough pixels to actually give you a round image. So you end up with square stars and that's, that's undersampling your image. And then conversely, you, you have too many pixels and you're oversampling. And so you want to find uh, an area right in, right in between where it's perfect. And of course, if, if you have to err, like I said, uh, on on the side of one or the other oversampling is, is okay. Um, You're just, losing a little bit of resolution, you're, you're magnifying blur basically.
0: Now you adjust this by adjusting the focal length or magnification or both?
2: Uh, both. Yeah. Um, if you have, you know, another telescope that, that would suit, um, you know, that, that purpose better by all means do that. But usually in, in planetary imaging, we're, we're imaging with Barlow's and Barlow's tend to have uh, a bit of distortion as you as you move out towards the edges. But of course, um, in planetary imaging, we're, you know, we're occupying, you know, the the very center of it, and then a small area on your on your chip, which is already really quite small, because you don't need, you know, a 35 millimeter camera to image Jupiter and Mars, they're only going to take up a few hundred or a few thousand pixels um, on that sensor.
0: Okay, so the pixel scale is important. That's what you're talking about. Also, the uh, uh, seeing is important. What other challenges are there in imaging planets
2: <laughs> just just finding the object can be uh very difficult um, like finding jupiter <laughs> oh, oh yeah believe it or not i mean you know you, you look up and see jupiter in the night sky and go oh there it is but you know when you're when you're zoomed into like ten thousand millimeters millimeters you know something <laughs> like that which is normally um where you're at with with a lot of these things normally you want to be you know with a newtonian i think somewhere around f15 or something like that and then uh with a Cassegrain telescope, f20 or 30, um, will, will usually get you in the ballpark of the, the right magnification and sampling size. You know the, the the demands placed on your telescope's pointing accuracy, and you know your your setup, even your finder scope, you really have to have everything dialed in. And so it's recommended that you know you have a flip mirror or something like that. And the flip mirror has got to be you know a, a nice quality one too, because if there's any you know optical deviation when that mirror flips up, if it moves over to the left or right a little bit in the angle, then you're still not going to see the object. But uh, it, it, it greatly helps, especially when you're photographing like the outermost planets like Uranus and Neptune, where um, even when you have them on your sensor, they just look like a TV static fuzzball. <laughs> <laughs> so I know,
1: we're, I know we're just about out of time here, but this was pretty amazing. And I'd like to know because I haven't heard the conclusion of the story, but I know that you, um, you found a storm. On one of these planets and we're kind of like in the process of trying to, you know, image it again to see if that were the case. Like, tell, tell me what happened there.
2: Um, so, yeah, it, it ended up being a, a very interesting thing. I, I can't go into too much detail about why we're there other than we, we were recording video for an upcoming, uh, upcoming TV show, which uh, hopefully pans out because that would be really exciting. Um, uh, about that, I can't talk too much about. We had really, really excellent scene that night. And so the telescope operator and I, I was doing the imaging we decided that you know what since the scene's really good let's just image Uranus and Neptune and so uh, he was curious about different processing methods and so once we had the telescope aligned on on each object i would get the computer running and the the camera running and everything and i'd show him you know how long i was recording the the data for what gain settings i was using and then i was just processing the images as as we went and i just saw something really strange that i hadn't seen before on on both Uranus and Neptune Well, actually more so uh, on Uranus because Neptune has an internal heat source that causes uh, storms to come and go somewhat infrequently uh, that scientists are still trying to understand. But uh, Uranus, I believe there's only been three times in history that there's been storms witnessed on on it um, of significant size. And one was by Voyager 2 when when it flew by, and then Keck, I believe in twenty fourteen. And then there was a gentleman, Anthony Wesley, that, that uh discovered one, a gentleman in Australia. Uh, he, really cool guy. Uh also I would I would consider to be one of the, the top in, uh imagers of, of the planets in the world. The guy's amazing. We saw this this kind of blip appear um on the on the planet, and I said, Hey, uh Richard, I think we might have something here. Uh, you know, it was it was getting late. It was around midnight. He was kind of ready to go home because he had a, another hour or so that he had to drive home after we were done. And so he said, well, you know what, we'll stay for another you know hour or so just so we could try and get the rotation of the planet to see if this thing actually, you know, wasn't an image processing artifact. We took some more images and. And I took the first one and processed it and took the last one and processed it. And then I kind of flipped them back and forth, you know, like how people look for comets. It was actually how Pluto was discovered, uh, flipping the images back and forth. And sure enough, this feature moved um, along the planet. And I said, oh, I think we discovered a storm. Like this is a pretty big deal, so we we posted it on uh, Cloudy Nights and a few other places. I I posted it on ALPO Japan, which is like the main planetary imaging uh, website. But uh, I was hoping you know more people could kind of look for this thing and confirm it. But what I hadn't realized is you know I'm imaging through a one and a half meter diameter telescope, so I, I get a lot better resolution than most people do. So it's it's hard to confirm it you know without you know pointing the Hubble Space Telescope or the Keck or something you know at it. But um, I'm still uh, convinced that we actually did discover uh, that storm. I mean, you can clearly see it move. I've reprocessed that data, you know, five or six times in different methods to try and make that spot go away, but it's always there. So we tried to follow up with observations a week later, but unfortunately the weather didn't really pan out. And the scene when, when it finally uh, you know, wasn't cloudy, was was pretty terrible. So we're hoping um, that it's still there and we'll have another you know shot at trying to image it. And uh, hopefully in the meantime, uh, some other astronomers around the world will uh, be able to uh, detect it several more times and really prove that this thing is out there. How long ago was this? Uh, let's see. Uh, it's about three weeks ago now. So does it do we have any idea how long these storms last? Um the storms on on Uranus I think are are relatively poorly understood. Like I said some of our data was was really only from the Voyager 2 spacecraft as it as it passed by and then uh, occasional observations by the CAC but I'd imagine, you know, uh from data that we have on Jupiter these storms could last a matter of weeks uh to, you know, sometimes months or years. So it's it's really hard to tell. But one of the things I did using uh, the WinJupos program, which is a, a program for derotating or unsmearing, um, you know, long video files of planetary images, it also has the ability to measure features. And I, I measured the feature at about, uh, I believe, about 6,000 miles across. Or 6,000 kilometers. And initially I thought that might have been too big, but I believe Jupiter's red spot right now is about 9,600 kilometers across. So that, that would fit, I think, pretty well with uh, the, the size of Uranus. Yeah, only time will tell, really. Hopefully somebody with a bigger telescope will be able to be pointing at it at the right time. <laughs> My favorite part of that story is
0: when you say, you know, I, but then I forgot I'm using a meter, tele, meter, meter class telescope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's really great. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I think we're out of time. I will, because I had some questions on things like exposure times and things like that for, for planets. So we're going to have to have you black, back, Blake, um, to talk more about this. Oh, no problem. I'd love to. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, I guess we'll call it, well, we'll stop there, folks. Um, my guest today was Blake Estes. He's a, a, he works at OPT as a tester and a lot of other roles there at the company, but he also is a telescope operator for the Griffith, the telescopes at the Griffith Observatory and Mount Wilson. And he is one of the best planetary imagers that's out there. So I want to thank you for taking time out to talk with us about your work, because that's really cool. And we will hopefully have you back to talk about more nuts and bolts and nitty gritty uh details of how to take images through planetary images through a telescope so we look forward to that sounds great looking forward to it well i want to thank you all so much for listening this another episode of space junk we will be back next week and i want to thank you all so much for listening and as always keep looking up space junk was produced by opt telescopes in carlsbad california in partnership with deep astronomy Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.